And all the moms said? Amen. Amen. Um, Yeah, peace is what we're going to be talking about today. And would you agree? It's in short supply. So I think uh, a worthy topic for consideration this morning. I want to welcome you. My name is Mike. I am not Austin. I am a bit thicker of waist and lighter of hair. And, um, and so he's teaching in the other room. So I just am glad to be with you today. If you are new uh, among us, you got a card uh, on your chair. is a connect card. So that lets us know you're here and any information uh, that you would like from us. And that gives us some information about you also. Um, you got a weekly, and in that weekly is an Advent calendar if you want to be playing along with us. Uh, and then on the back of it are some Christmas events. Tonight, personally, is the highlight of the entire Christmas season. It is uh, the sweetest Christmas ever, which I thought, initially when I heard it, I thought it was Swedish Christmas ever, and I didn't understand, maybe it was an Ikea sort of thing. But um, no, this is our special needs ministry, of which my son Seth is a part and he is a donkey tonight. And so we are very excited. He has one speaking line. We've been practicing. Hello, Rachel. So glad to see you guys right up here. Right here. Don't go anywhere else. Now, the question is, were you in the other service first? Never. A, yes, you were. Okay. No, that's all right. All right. Don't, don't judge. Don't pretend like there haven't been times. All right. Now, so, so that's at 6 o'clock tonight. And it's amazing and it, it is uh, literally the highlight of the Christmas season, and uh, so we just invite you to come to participate in that. If you have to choose between sitting here now and coming tonight, leave and come back, because it's that, that good. Now, let's go to the book of Genesis, because we love the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, talk about peace. We're following ad, the Advent liturgical calendar, and so these are themed weeks. Hope last week, peace. Next week, joy, love. And, uh, and then Christmas, so here we go. It's coming. Oh, it's here. And let's, hey, let's talk about football for a second. Let's just, for just a moment, let's just talk. What? That's right. Now, I got 59 reasons to be happy today. If anyone knows what that is in reference to. Nope, nope, okay. Ohio State won 59-0 last night over Wisconsin. That is what I'm talking about. All right, no one cares. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1. Listen, if you want to be a part of what God is doing in the world, you follow Ohio State football. All right, now, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then the rest of the chapter is this beautiful kind of poetic narrative. He's speaking things into existence. He's just with his very words. He's forming and he's separating, and there's this refrain over and over. It is good, it is good, it is good. Verse 31 of that same chapter Notice what the writer says here. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. Now you get another complementary picture in Genesis 2. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you get a picture of an ordered, benevolent, intelligent creation. What you get is a picture of of a God who creates out of no compulsion, but creates something that reflects his beauty, his character, his power. And, And the human beings he nestles into this creation were to be rightly related to him as their creator, to each other as fellow image bearers, and to creation itself as they were to work it and take care of it. Now the Jewish word to describe the state of affairs in Genesis 1 and 2 is the word shalom. The word shalom is the the word that we translate into English as peace, 
But peace isn't strong enough because in our world, the opposite of war is peace. So peace, in our definition, is just the absence of war. But biblically, shalom is something much more organic than that. It's harmony between all the related parts. It is, it is integrity when everything is functioning as it should for the, ben, the, the blessing of the whole. It is, uh, it is unity. It is this beautiful, deep picture of wholeness. So shalom is what God intended for the world, where human beings with intimacy relate to him, relate to each other, and steward creation. Now this last two chapters, as we know, and the last two chapters of the Bible, we get similar pictures uh, of a, a tree of life and of rivers that, uh, that, that are for life and leaves that bring healing to the nations. And so, so the Bible ends with shalom. The Bible begins with shalom. But in the middle, right, between uh, those four chapters, we live in the absence of shalom, right? What we live is we're broken in ourselves. We have broken relationships all around us. Uh, how, many, how many pictures and scenes of conflict, the absence of shalom, did we see this week as people are protesting and we're looking at injustice? I mean, you just see the carnage of the lack of God's shalom all over. So when we look at the Christmas story, the Christmas story really begins in Genesis with God's intention that the earth would live under this peace. Now, as it doesn't, there are promises that God will ultimately restore things to the way he intended. And a lot of those are found in the book of Isaiah. So flip over there. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. Now, Isaiah is a really, really important book to understand the Gospels and to understand the ministry of Jesus so much. Jesus himself frames his ministry out of Isaiah. So go to Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to look at a couple of passages that are very, very famous and read during this season, appropriately so, as we talk about what it means to have peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse, um, let's go to verse 6. This would make lyrics to a really good, like, choral thing. (laughs) For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The picture is uh, that, that... this Isaiah is written to a nation that is either in exile or facing exile or both. The northern tribes of Israel have been sent because of the unjust leadership of the rulers and the pagan nations around them. They've been sent into exile. The southern tribe of Judah, it's really two and a half tribes, that southern kingdom, they're now sitting there being warned that unless they repent, they too will be sent into exile. And, and there are these just promises scattered throughout that when God brings his people back from exile... There, there is something waiting for them that is characterized by shalom. So he talks about, the writer talks about a child, a son, the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be a ruler, in other words. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, so he'll be wise. He'll be called Mighty God. So this, this isn't actually just an ordinary human ruler. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, right? Prince of Shalom, Bearer of Shalom. Of the greatness of his government and peace... There will be no end. Now, this piece is characterized. Go to chapter 11. Notice how this piece is characterized by the writer. One of the most beautiful images in all of the Old Testament about what shalom looks like. Verse 6 of Isaiah 11. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. And not just because the wolf is eating the lamb. They're both lying down. It's the idea uh, that they're lying down in harmony. 
The, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. In other words, there will be shalom, not just between human beings, but even to the animals. Even the creation itself will experience it. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. So what you have is the story begins with shalom. It ends with shalom. And then you have these promises of of this thing that God is going to do to bring shalom back to the earth. Go to chapter 52 real quick. Just a couple more in Isaiah. The, The theme is so prevalent. We could spend the next 20 minutes looking at different passages. What I want you to do is I want you to get in your head that when we talk about being saved, all right, when Christians talk about being saved, what they mean is they go to heaven. That's part of it. But when, when the Bible talks about being saved, it's attached to this word shalom. It's bigger than just going somewhere else. It's, a, it's kind of a way of being where you're integrated back into what you were made for in relationship with God, each other, yourself, and even the created world. And so the goal of the story isn't a bunch of disembodied souls floating around with harps in an eternal search service. The story actually ends on a renewed earth with, with humans who have resurrected bodies doing human things evidently forever and ever and ever, which sounds a bit more compelling than harps and wings on clouds, just personally. Now, if you're a harpist, then I can't really speak to that. Now, Isaiah chapter 40, or Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring what? Good news, who proclaim peace, shalom, who bring tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Israel, your God reigns. There's one coming A child who will carry a government, a righteous government, a ruler who will come and bring justice and righteousness and shalom to the earth. Flip over to chapter 53. And then notice, this is is, um, one of the more famous chapters in Isaiah, spoken of about someone called the servant of Israel. The servant of Israel is sometimes spoken of as Israel and sometimes spoken of as an individual person. So Christians read this next part and say, well, well that's, of course, that's Jesus, right? This is like some of the most famous stuff in the Old Testament. Verse 5, the servant of Israel, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us, all right, five of us are there. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And so here here are the images, and we could look at many others. The story begins with Shalom, ends with Shalom. And in the meantime, God is bringing about a restoration of Shalom through somebody. So it's not surprising when you get to Luke, then Luke chapter 2. Yep, we love Luke. We miss Luke. We need Luke. Luke chapter 2. We've spent so much time in Luke. I literally have pages are now falling out of Luke. So I have to glue them back in there. Luke chapter 2. Verse 1, in those days, now Linus should be reading this, right? Can I get a Charlie Brown amen right now? 
In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And then, of course, that means Mary and Joseph traveled to their ancestral hometown, Bethlehem. We read the birth narrative and notice, verse 10, angels appeared to shepherds. And what's the number one thing, if you're an angel, they teach you to say in angel training school? Don't be afraid. afraid. You always have to lead with that because evidently you're terrifying to human beings. So always, literally, anytime an angel shows up, first thing they say, always. So the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you what? Good news. So that's an Isaiah word. That will cause great joy for the people. We'll look at joy next week. Today in the town of David, that's a reference to Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign that this is true. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host. Now heavenly host is a way of seeing the angelic army. All right, so this isn't like a bunch of choir robed, you know, be, I mean, this is like, if you were to see this without the do not be afraid part, you would be very afraid. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, and then we all know these very famous words, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, shalom. Now the old translations had it, right? Peace on earth, good will to men. But that's not quite right. This is a little more accurate. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, when you look at Luke as a whole, this is so in keeping with what Luke is up to. Because what Luke, Luke's project, because it's the project of Jesus, is to show who are the favored ones. By God. So what I want to do is I want to ask two questions. First, who are the favored ones? And then second, how does peace come? All right, so if peace is related to God's favor resting on you, who are the people that are favored? Let's go to chapter 1, verse 26. Let's look at some favored people, and you will see a trend in favoring. Luke chapter 1. You guys okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. I am... See, I'm so close to you. I can feel your boredom. I can feel it. No, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I deal with it at home all the time. Amen, brother. Yeah, I know, seriously. Uh, Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Uh, well, hello, Gary. A town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was? And how old's Mary? She just hit puberty. Usually girls were betrothed when they just hit puberty. So maybe 12, 13. Oh yeah, young, 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 young. Junior high. I know. How old's your daughter? Yeah, she'd be married by now. Back in the, seriously, back in the day. She looks sleepy, and I, I don't blame her. That was that. That's fine. No, no, don't, don't make her sit up. That's the worst thing to do. Let her, let her rest. The girl needs rest. And I have a very soothing voice. <laughs> so Mary, Mary's probably 12 or 13. She's betrothed to be married. And notice the angel went to her and said to her, Greetings, you who are highly, what? Highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So the angel said to her, what? Do not be afraid. You found favor with God. Now, do we, do we know anything about Mary? No. She's 
12, 13 years old. She's a virgin. Uh, she's a young peasant girl. And she is favored by God. So, the first time you meet favor in the gospel, it's attached to one of the least likely bearers of Messiah that you could ever imagine. I mean, it would totally make sense if this were the daughter of the high priest. It would totally make sense if this were the daughter of one of the righteous Pharisees. But this is just somebody in the middle of nowhere. This is nobody in the middle of nowhere who gets this announcement of divine favor. Now, Mary, Mary's going to bust out in some song. Now, when the Bible, when there are songs in the Bible, they're a lot better than our Christmas songs, right? I'm all for silent nights and, 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 and cute little, you know, nativity scenes. But Mary's going to sing the battle hymn of the kingdom. And she's not going to sing about, you know, little sweet Bethlehem. She's going to sing about unjust rulers being toppled and about the poor being lifted up and God keeping his promises. I mean, that's the good news of Christmas. It's a bit stronger than what we've made it into. So verse 47, notice who though, who are the favored ones? Notice, Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Now fear him, just so you know, doesn't mean be afraid of him. Fear him means awe, reverence, respect. It's, it's the kind of, it's, you know, it's, it's what we give too easily to celebrities, right? That's what we're talking about. That, like, it's way better than Kim Kardashian. Now, bless her. Bless her, Jesus. Save her in the name of Jesus. Now, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has sent the hungry. He's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. Now, do you see this little, I mean, she's 12, she's 13, and she's declaring war on the status quo. Because what the angel has said is that this shalom-bearing child is coming. She is the instrument through whom peace will come to the earth. And all of those who are really happy with the status quo, this is bad news. But those for whom the status quo is lacking, this is great news. This is why it's joy for all the people. Because what, what God is doing is he's giving favor now to the lowly, to the humble, to those who fear him, to 12, 13-year-old peasant girls. Flip over to chapter 4. Jesus' first sermon, notice how he frames his ministry. Luke chapter 4, I know, I know you miss Austin, you're stuck with me, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, this is Jesus quoting from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me, so he's quoting this, and then at the end of it he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So this is his mission statement, the spirit of the Lord is on me, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to thee, poor. Now, remember, if you've been around, the poor, it's not just the economically poor, the poor are anybody hungry for the things of God. Anybody dissatisfied with the status quo, right? The poor, it's just not just poverty, although it includes that. It means all of those who aren't self-sufficient, all of those who aren't proud, all of those who are on the margins. That's who we're talking about here. He sent me to proclaim freedom for, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's what? 
favor. So as you go through the ministry of Jesus, this is what he's doing. How does peace come to the earth? Or who does God favor? Well, Jesus is peace on earth, and he's favoring all of the folks that you didn't think would be favored. Flip over to chapter 6, and he has a bit of a manifesto on who are the favored ones. Verse 20, looking at the disciples... Favored are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Favored are you who hunger now, you will be satisfied. Favored are you who weep now, you will laugh. Favored are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, and reject your name as evil because of me. But woe, verse 24, to those of you who are rich. But unfavored are you who are rich. Unfavored are you who are well fed. Unfavored are you who laugh now. Unfavored are you when everyone speaks well of you. And if you remember... We looked at this over the summer. Jesus isn't speaking of eight different kinds of people. He's speaking of two different kinds of people. People who are in love with the status quo and people who hate. If you're here, hate the status quo. If you're here and you find yourself watching social media or television this week and yearning that God would bring about something better, favored are you. If you see inside your own heart and you hate what you find there and you yearn to be freed and healed, to be forgiven and cleansed, favored are you. If if you're somebody that laments the state of the world, you're tired of seeing families blow apart and children rebel, you're tired of seeing diseases take loved ones, and you yearn and pray like the early church has prayed and the church for generations has prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus, then favored are you. Because God's new thing is here and is coming. And so the favor is attached to those people who sit in the middle of this life and know it's not the way it's supposed to be. I don't mean know it as an intellectual exercise or know it as a bit of religious theory. You sit and your very soul laments and weeps and says, this isn't right. The Christmas story is for you. This kingdom is for you. Because in this baby wrapped in cloths comes peace to the earth. And not just peace now, but it's the restoration of the peace that characterized life in the garden. That's the image is that Jesus is now coming as an ambassador of peace to people who were surprising. The marginalized, the peasant girls, the sinners, anybody who was hungry for a change. Uh, go if you would to chapter 7. Notice, notice what he says. Chapter 7, verse 50. Oh, there's so much. We could spend days. Wouldn't you love it? You would not. The one person who said yes, I will pay you. No, <laughs> Verse 50, here's a woman that interrupts a dinner party. We've looked at her. She's notoriously sinful, interrupts a dinner party, right? So offends the host that the host thinks there's no way Jesus is a prophet. Because if he did, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. How does Jesus speak to her right at the very end? Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in what? Peace. So what Jesus was giving, so being saved and being restored to shalom, it's the same idea. So, yes, it includes the idea of heaven, but it's just bigger than that. It's her finding wholeness. It's her finding restoration of the community. It's her finding a place 
in the covenant people of God when the covenant people of God had told her she had no place. Right? So this is what Jesus was doing. He was bringing peace to the earth. We see peace as like when I'm tranquil. Peace is when I sleep well. Peace is when I'm not stressed. No, 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 no. That's, that's just happiness. You've, happiness, that's just momentary. That's circumstantial. This, peace and joy and hope, these are states of being. You can be mourning and have peace. You can be lamenting and have peace. You can, you can be crying out and be joyful. I mean, these are so much deeper than just these momentary, Americanized, individualistic, therapeutic emotions. That's a whole bunch of big words. Boom. I know, chapter 8, verse 48, says it again. To a woman that fights her way through the crowd, she just touched the hem of his garment. Verse 48, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So, Two questions about the Christmas story. One, who is favored if the announcement is peace on earth to those on whom God's favor rests? Well, who are the favored ones? Lowly, meek, humble. Who are the unfavored ones? The self-sufficient, the self-righteous, those who don't need any help, those for whom the status quo is just fine. Thank you. The second question is how does peace come? Now, chapter 2, verse 1, flip back there very quickly. We meet a guy, and we've talked about this before, so I'm going to go really quickly through it. A couple of Christmases ago, we met a guy named Caesar Augustus. And I just want to highlight chapter 2, verse 1. Luke locates the Christmas story with this guy. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, Caesar Augustus, not just like somebody you read about in history books. I mean, he is a fundamental counterpoint to the biblical story. Because if you study Roman history, out of the chaos of the assassination of Julius Caesar, years, a decade or so of civil war, engulfs the Roman Empire and the entire Mediterranean basin, until this guy, Caesar Augustus, unifies the empire. His big gift to the world, you have to understand, in the first century, there was one gift Caesar Augustus gave to the world, and it was peace on earth. Okay? He was called Savior. He was called Lord. He was called Prince of Peace. There was an altar in Rome that was called the Altar of Roman Peace. We call it the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Now, it's a bit of a jab then when you have an angel announcing to a shepherd that a baby is going to bring peace on earth. When the most powerful Roman leader in the history of the world boasted that he brought peace on earth. Because these pieces on earth were vastly different and brought about vastly different ways. So, Philip, if you'd fire up the iPad. This is stuff you've looked at before. One historian says this right here. The Romans are plunderers of the world. If the enemy is rich, they are insatiable. If they're poor, then they just want their land. Not east, not west has sated them. They rob, butcher, plunder, and they call it empire. And where they make desolation, in other words, where they destroy everything, they call it what? Peace. One uh, historian, a different historian, says it this way. Their aim was to punish, to avenge, and to terrify. That's why crucifixion was so powerful. Crucifixion wasn't just a way to put people to death. They had much quicker ways of doing it. Crucifixion was a way to humiliate and terrify your enemies. 
Germanicus laid waste to the country. So this is a historian speaking of a Roman general. He laid waste to the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor gender inspired pity. So women and children and men would be equally taken down. Places sacred and profane were raised indifferently to the ground. Only the destruction of the race would end the war. Right? So Rome brought peace. An entire city called Magdala. We read about a woman from here, Mary was destroyed in 52 BC and 52,000 or excuse me 30,000 people were taken as slaves by the Roman general Cassius right around the time Jesus was born there was a city north of Nazareth called Sepphoris that city was destroyed and a Roman general named Verus crucified 2,000 Jews at one time so when Jesus is raised in Nazareth you think he heard stories about this well, of course he did 2,000 Jews crucified at one time. And in fact, here's an inscription written about Caesar Augustus from, uh, found in, a, in, a, in the Asian province that, was, that the argument was, Caesar is so magnificent, let's make his birthday the beginning of the new year. So, since providence, now remember, providence here is the will of the gods, since the providence that has divinely ordered our existence and has applied her energy and zeal, and has brought us to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she filled with virtues for the benefits of mankind, bestowing upon us and our descendants him as a savior. He who put an end to war, what's that called? Right, so, so our world's definition of peace is just end of war. I know, and it's the next side. I know, thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for ruining it. Yes. He who put an end to war and will order peace. Caesar, who by his epiphany. Now, this is so interesting. So in the Christmas story, we celebrate something called Advent. Caesar had an Advent, 12-day celebration of his birth. We also celebrate Epiphany Sunday in the church calendar. Caesar had an epiphany. I mean, it's 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 just kind of interesting. Caesar, who by his epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied good tidings, not only outdoing benefactors of the past, but allowing no hope of greater benefactions in the future. So the idea is this. Caesar is a God who brought peace to the earth. How did Caesar bring peace to the earth? What method did he use? Destruction. Destruction, torture, humiliation, coercion, threats, violence, correct? So that's what peace was is as long as you agreed with Rome, worshipped Rome, tithed to Rome, you were favored by Rome. So it's interesting that when Jesus comes along, he's got a slightly different definition, right? Because what's Jesus going to do? He's not going to use swords and violence and threats and intimidation. Jesus is going to do something entirely different. Go, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. A couple more passages, guys. I know you love it. I know you love it. Matthew 26. I can feel the excitement building for lunch. Matthew chapter 26. Let's go to verse. I'll know it when I get there. Verse 50. So Jesus is being arrested. Judas arranges a signal with kind of the, the, the mob that's come to arrest him. Jesus sees Judas and says, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, which disciple did that? Peter is awesome. 
Jesus, resp- Jesus resp- replies, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And, th- and then this is one of my favorite sayings of Jesus. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12? And then what's the word? Now, how did Rome rule the world? Through their legions. So that's just not a coincidence that Jesus happens to say, oh, by the way, I got 12 legions of angels at my call and I'm pretty sure only one could take care of you guys. I added that last part. (laughs) Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled to say it would happen in this way? In other words, hey, you want to do the threat, coercion, violent, torture, like sword thing? I got that. I mean, he will say to Pilate, and if we had time, we would look at this in the book of John. It's just this fascinating dialogue between Pilate. Pilate, the Roman governor, looks at Jesus at one point and says, hey, don't you know I have the power to let, set you free or crucify you? And Jesus looks at him and says, the only power you have is given to you from above. My kingdom is of not of this world. Because if it were of this world, my followers would fight. But as it is, this must happen this way. I mean, I love it. It's Jesus saying, hey, you want to do sword? We can do sword and I will win. But that's not how my kingdom works. And so the story given to us from this point forward is of Jesus being mocked and spat upon, beaten and insulted, right, whipped with an inch of his life, and saying nothing except things like, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Of having all the evil, the worst the Roman Empire could do, thrown upon him and him taking it out of circulation. Absorbing it and not passing it on. I mean, it's just the most staggering story. He never once threatened. He never once retaliated. He never once traded insult for insult. He just took it. Yes, he died for the sins of the world and your sins and my sins, but he was confronting the way the sword system works too. All who live by the sword die by the sword. So no one's worshiping Caesar Augustus today. Not one person, maybe except for us, and whoever is reading this passage, even mentions his name. Right? No one's singing songs to Herod the Great. And yet here we are, citizens of a different kingdom. How does peace come to the earth? Well, you've got two versions. Violence, intimidation, threats, and coercion, or sacrificial suffering and redemptive love. How does peace come to the earth today? Through good wishes? We're going to send thoughts and prayers? Nope, comes to the earth the same way. See, the two questions turn out to be related. Who are the objects of God's favor? The lowly, the humble, the hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And then once they receive God's favor, what are they now invited to do? To be peacemakers. To bear the same peace they received. That's why Jesus will say in Matthew, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are children of God. Or go, if you would, to 1 Peter. Yep, you look like you needed. One more, go to 1 Peter. Peter will put it this way. And if you don't know where 1 Peter is, 
It's right before Second Peter. Love it every time. Never gets old. Never. First Peter chapter two verse twenty. Now he's writing to slaves, and so we don't even this this whole like cultural environment doesn't make sense to us. But he's saying, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? So if you receive punishment for doing wrong, what credit is that to you? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Why? To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Hmm. Verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. All right, so let's talk about insults for you. Because, yes, these passages can easily be applied to war, or let's say you're a police officer, or let's say you're in the military, or let's say you've been abused, and there are big questions that are raised whenever we talk about not returning evil for evil. All right, if you're in an abusive relationship, let me just say, let me be really, leave. Call authorities, We're not going to talk about the extremes of this. I want to talk about the 90% of your real day that is the just stupid stuff of human life. Somebody cuts you off. Somebody says something nasty. Somebody posts something unflattering. See, the invitation to be a peacemaker first comes when you realize, oh, oh, the misfits, the outcasts, the humble, oh, oh, we're the favored ones who received the shalom of this Jesus, and then the job becomes passing that along. How do you pass peace on? Simple. You take evil out of circulation. In Paul's words, you do not return evil for evil, you return evil with good. Now again, yeah, yeah, but what about abuse? Or what about it? We're not talking about that. Don't paint this extremes. Let's just talk about the regular stuff of your family. About how when your brother or sister says something nasty and you just fire right back. When your husband or wife gives you that look. And you not only return the look but up it a little bit. I know of which I speak. (laughs) And there's this little bitty escalation that goes on in the marital relationship, right? Or how the sins of the parents get passed on to the sons and to the daughters. Or how at the workplace there's that one person that drives you insane. That's the stuff I want to talk about. Because if it's true that you've received favor and peace, then the job is never just to, okay, well, how do I get the warm fuzzy back? If you want to find peace on earth, simple. Here's the formula. Ready? Seek first the kingdom of God. Everything else will be provided. And secondly, be a peacemaker. That's how you find it. That's it. That's it. Rearrange what you treasure. Treasure only the things of the kingdom. No, those things can't be touched. No economy can affect them. No disease can infect it. Nothing can affect the kingdom. If you treasure that, you'll have peace, guaranteed. Pete, lack of peace comes because we treasure everything else. And we know it's all unstable. So I treasure health or youthfulness or whatever. How can you not grieve when you get older? If you treasure money, how can you not grieve when the economy is going crazy? If you treasure The absence of conflict, how can you not grieve when wars and rumors of wars are just flooding the airwaves, right? But once you get that part down, the invitation is to become a peacemaker. How do you do that? Oh, you're going to have lots of opportunities today. (laughs) Just today. Just today. Just try it today. Someone cuts you off? Bless them. 
Seriously. You get horrible service. Tip anyway. Somebody says something short to you. Take it out of circulation. Do you know what I mean by that? See, what we do, what I do, something bad happens, I either dish it back or I take it out on somebody else. Taking it out of circulation means you have security enough in this Jesus that you become the kind of person that can forgive the pettiness. Now, some of you are dealing with horrible things. That is a different thing. I'm just talking about the nonsense when you're waiting in line and someone cuts in front of you. Oh, I want to tell them about justice. (laughs) Right? I mean, so much of the nonsense of this world can be absorbed by people of goodwill who simply say, I'm done with the sword game. I'm done with the insult game. I'm done. I can't control it. I'm done. I'm opting out of this game. So how about just today? Just today. How about the next half hour? And five, of the, five, of the half, five minutes of the half hour will be this service. We'll sing. So you're good for at least five minutes. But if you, I, I mean, really, close your eyes. Some of you, that will be natural. And you've been doing that for a while. Can we just go before God? Yep, go, come on up, Tavi. Can you go before God for a moment and just ask, okay, God, what is one area that I can bring peace into today? What would it look like if you were the first one to apologize? If you were the one that spoke blessing when other people were insulting? I mean, just, just one thing. Just one thing. So, Father, I would imagine there are some here who don't believe they are objects of divine favor, who feel lost, alone, who feel alienated and separated. And, Father, we proclaim that good news has come to the poor, to the hungry, to the lonely, to the broken, that you can have peace, the shalom of God. You can have it today. And we also believe, God, for those who are the objects of your favor, who've come into this covenant with you. Lord, the invitation for us is to be bearers of shalom. And so, Lord, would you help us, just this crew of a couple of hundred people, to take evil out of circulation and place blessing in its stead. And we need you to do that desperately, Father, because we are broken and those around us are too. And so would you give us, um, would you widen our imagination about just escaping the same old sword for sword, insult for insult way of life. We might do something far more bigger and beautiful. Amen.